so you've come to expect this from us by now, so the, what I'm about to say is not going to come as any surprise to you, but we want to add our voice as a pastoral staff and as a church leadership to what has really now become an uproar across the country of disgust and alarm around our administration's policies related to separating children from their immigrant parents. Something like 2,000 kids have been removed. As best I've been able to read, the purpose of all of this is to force parents and guardians to come forward and put thumbprints on files. I think this is a way to accelerate deportation and to make a particular group of their constituency happy. And I'm alarmed and I'm disgusted and I'm also not fooled. This is not about the rule of law. And the whole situation is almost more than we can take. And I'm just going to tell you this because you know this already. Anytime Franklin Graham, the Southern Baptist Convention, and the College of American Bishops and the Catholic Church and your staff at ANC agree on something, <laughs> just going to say this is unacceptable. This is um, way beyond a civil thing. They have escalated this to a criminal situation, and I am disgusted. This is classic example of proof texting a verse and lifting it, lifting it above the testimony and witness of Christ and saying, because the Bible says so. So I'm ashamed of our attorney general. I'm ashamed of these United Methodist delegate. I'm hang on. I'm ashamed. <laughs> I'm ashamed that people swallow this cheese snack on a fish hook and think, well, it's biblical. You guys, this was the freaking textual proof for slavery. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. That is not what Paul was writing about in the book of Romans. We know this because it runs counter to everything else we know to be true about Christ and, and, and the, the mission of the church in the world. So shame on you, Attorney General Beauregard, Jeff Beauregard Sessions III. I'm sorry I had to say that name. It's such a great name. Shame on you. And I'm proud to tell you that our collective group of Capital District United Methodist rabble-rousing pastors in this town, Taylor and uh, uh, Wilson and Laura and Jay, put some, put some words on a, a resolution at annual conference a couple weeks ago that, that officially sanctioned from the United Methodist perspective this action, specifically as it relates to a person who is a card-carrying United Methodist pastor. This is not acceptable that is not biblical, and I think we have to do something. I don't know what to tell you other than if you call your Congress representative, you're going to get the same thing I'm going to get for the last three days. All of their mailboxes are full. They're not taking messages. This, that's cowardly. I don't know how else to do it. Here's my suggestion. Fix this at the kitchen table. Talk to your children about this. Help them understand that this is not acceptable. This is not humane. This is not about the rule of law. This is a way to put pressure on a particular group of people who are weak, and it's for political gains. This is purely economic, and this is not okay with me. So I'm on record with you. Trey can go on record. We can talk about this however you want to talk about this. I'm very aware that this might be deeply offensive to some of you, but this crossed the line, and you could tell by the barn going up in flames on the Internet, which I don't pay any attention to. Jen called me yesterday and says, you need to pay attention to this. We need to talk about this. I, was, I curate my mind and basically tune out everything political at this point because I can't deal with it. I was working on a farm table for our new house, and so then I jumped online and realized this is a unanimous response to this. I think we might see some action this week from the Congress, but this is not okay. Sorry if that offends you. Can you take a deep breath and say, it's going to be super awkward to get up from the middle of the aisle you're sitting in and walk out if you do it now. So I'm just saying. <laughs> Switching gears. 
Switching gears, these colors brought to you by Mexico. Somebody asked me, oh, are you into the World Cup? Yeah, I'm into the World Cup. And let me just, let me just tell you that may the hornets of a thousand camels infest your armpits if you tell me the score. Don't tell me the score. The game is going on right now. Don't tell me the score. I don't want to know. I'm recording it, okay? So I'm going to be super antisocial leaving this room in a minute. And I, my daughter walked in the room and said, hey, the score. I'm like, nah, stop. What you need to know is that I'm super in love with the potential narrative of the new world whooping up on the old world. But I'm too excited because I have a strategy. Here's how it works. Cheer Mexico on until they lose and then cheer on Germany. I know. <laughs> Sorry, my, my parents are German immigrants, you know, so I kind of play both sides of the ocean. But boy, would I love Mexico to go all the way. It would be so amazing. Just... If you don't know what it's all about, listen, seriously, time out. Stop the clock here. Seriously. <laughs> seriously, ready? I'm going to do, do the full, listen, if you are such a football fan and you say soccer's so boring, I dare you to watch the Spain-Portugal game where Cristiano Ronaldo proved to the world that he's worth his, what, $80 million a year. I dare you. Most exciting game, better than, better than bowl championship series for college football. It's, you're not going to be convinced. <laughs> I can survive down here in the diaspora, Lord. I can do this and scattered among crazy generation. You know, you should just know that if the entire planet gets it and America's the only people who don't, then you should just know what you're looking at. It's just America who doesn't get it. Sorry. So next week, I'll be wearing my German jersey. So happy Father's Day. Welcome to my brain, right? Boom, boom, boom. Happy Father's Day, guys. Isn't it great? Celebrate yourself today, and here's what I would add to that. Celebrate yourself guilt-free. Most of us don't ever quite figure that out until we're way too old. Let me give you a few thoughts for free before we jump into today's text. I actually have a couple ideas about being a dad. So I've got five daughters, two of which are now in college, working on the last three. But I have some things that, um, there's a lot of things I think that I think about stuff, but there's a few things that I actually know about, and I think being a dad is one of those things. Here's what I think. It's not easy being a dad. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy being mom. God knows that's the most impossible task ever. Bring these people onto the earth and then watch them choose to think somebody else is cooler. That, nothing could be worse. <laughs> nothing could be worse. But it's not easy being a dad for several reasons that occurred to me. For starters, I think American culture no longer has a workable script for us as men and as fathers. What do I mean, what do I mean by that? Masculinity as a cultural script is morphing under our feet. What is expected of us? What is the right way to be? It's changing. And I feel like most of us are confused about it. Most of us are genuinely confused. You see, the old, worn-out, patriarchal script is unrecoverable. The I'm right because I'm dad, you know, is, is, is no longer workable. It just doesn't work for us anymore. We've come through the woman's liberation. We've gained some amazing things from that. We know that being the big boss man and being in charge simply because we're men is not workable anymore. Maybe you don't, you know, maybe you don't know that. Hmm, you should work on that. Doesn't fit. We know that taking what we want when we want it just because we're men isn't right. We know that doesn't fit anymore. We've also come through an awakening around gender and sexuality in a culture, but even specifically as a local church, right, which has helped us actually understand that men who love men and women who love women and people who love neither and people who love both are actually no threat to your masculinity. You want to understand my body language? When I square up and I give you my right foot forward, it means I'm really trying to make this point. It's actually not a threat to your masculinity that somebody would love somebody differently than what you would choose to love. It actually isn't the undermining of your John Wayne-ness. <laughs> you see, when I, well, never mind, I won't go into that. 
but we're looking for a new script, a new way to be a man, a new way to understand masculinity, and I think that we're in flux. Our roles now don't only just include providing and protecting, but they also include being somehow deeply intuitive to the emotional landscape of deep space, which is the brain of your wife or your daughter. We're expected to be, all of a sudden, our brains are expected to catch up to this, to this. We have to be emotionally super in tune now, too, in addition to every other thing we're doing. Most of us understand, oh, you know, and, and uh, that's not true for everyone. But I think we're in flux. Things are changing. There's a whole new skill set that we're expected to master. And so here's my suggestion as men on Father's Day. I think when we co-lead with our wives and with people in our lives and our loved ones and our partners, I think that's when, when, we're, when we're at our best. When we advocate strongly with the strength we have, not acting like we're universally strong across all sort of fields of skill, when we advocate strongly and we co-lead and we interdepend and we nurture well, I think that's the best script we have available at this point. I'm just, I'm just aware in our culture that we're stuck in between. So most of us are tired. We're not bad dads. We're tired because we don't know how to do it. We don't know what to play. We don't have a playbook. We've never been down you know, it's never been fourth and long with a second to go as a way of bringing the football fans into the room on a World Cup Sunday. So we're not bad dads, we're just tired. And so my, my suggestion to you today would be lean in. There's a new way. Lead well, follow well, advocate strongly, and know that it, the whole world is not actually on your shoulders. And do that guilt-free while you grill something today and you have something cold to drink. And so that's for free. Let's jump into today's text because the clock is ticking. We're continuing our series in, in, uh, uh, where Jesus quotes the Old Testament, and today I think we have a particular gem. Not all of these do I love, but today's I really, really enjoy. So let's look at Luke chapter 22, verse 35 through 37, and I'll just read it. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? He's talking to his disciples. Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And this gets a little cryptic, and you can figure this one out later. And if you, have, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. So I guess a naked army? I don't know what he's trying to raise up here. But here's the verse I want to focus on. For it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me, says Jesus. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. This idea, numbered among the transgressors. What, do the, what, do you, what in the world does this mean? What could he mean by this? You know how much I like to camp out in these little turns of phrase that swirl around the public ministry of Jesus? There's several, and I love them all, and some of them are so interesting, and most of them he deploys, I think, to, to, to bring understanding a little deeper into our hearts and into our minds, but this one in particular, this little phrase I love, this one's a winner, and today, like last week, Jesus is actually quoting the prophet Isaiah, a major figure in their history. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, and we're not going to do the context work here. We're just going to grab this example. It reads this way. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and this is the prophet speaking of Jesus, obviously, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What does it mean to be counted to be numbered among the transgressors. What does it mean to be numbered among the criminals of our day? A transgressor was someone who knew the will of God and chose not to obey it. Not the same as someone who was ignorant of the plan and mind of God and didn't know any better, 
very different sort of person. The transgressor was the one who knew the boundary line and chose to cross it anyway. Effectively, the person who goes like this, la, 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 like this, la, 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 right? I'm not noticing. That's what a transgressor is. Someone who is belligerent in their rebellion, willfully so. So I would say, hang on, Jesus, what in the world are you thinking? Why would you knowingly associate with the bad guys? Like, these aren't even the ignorant ones who one could actually have mercy and empathy with. These are the willful, rebellious, the bad guys. What are you thinking, Jesus? I've been meditating on this phrase all week, and as I see it, there are probably several more, but these three different things came to my mind, these ways in which Jesus was numbered among the transgressors. First of all, in the unbelievable circumstances of the birth he chose. He's born in a place of poverty where few can even imagine. I grew up very poor. I don't know about you, but most of us can't even imagine what it would be like to be the illegitimate child of teenage refugees in a foreign land. Thank God they weren't separating babies from parents in that day. That's also free. Totally dependent on the kindness of strangers, of cultures that saw them as hostile. They are teenagers about to give birth in the back, of a, wild, back of, a, of, a, of a donkey looking for a place to do this, and Jesus chose the circumstances of his birth, and they were in the most unlikely place possible. There's a message there for us. And that is, there is nothing too far from his arm of love. There's nothing that he can't penetrate. He chose his place of birth. Second thing that comes to my mind, Jesus takes his place among us commoners, us transgressors, us normal folk, when he identified with the baptism of John, which, interestingly enough, presents a bit of a theological conundrum because it was a baptism for the remission of sins, which is an interesting thing to entertain if we also, at the same time, believe that Jesus was sinless. You see, John responds the way any of us would have. He says, no, 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 no. You do the baptizing. I'll do the receiving because you're clearly the one that needs to baptize me, to which Jesus says, nope, it's written this way. And I'm remembering the way it was written. I'm trying to captivate the imagination of a people here. You baptize me. He chose his place among us. Thirdly, Jesus takes his place among us, the transgressors, through the events of Passion Week. You know the story. Complete with a mock trial and a bogus conviction and ultimately through a cruel and inhumane crucifixion on a cross, which was a place where public criminals paid publicly for their sins. We'll come back to this idea of a atoning a little bit later. But Jesus willingly died the kind of death that was designed to be a visual deterrent to young, ambitious criminals so that they would pick a different vocation. Jesus picked this place to hang, to pay for the sins of the world. And it's this third intentional, deliberate, provocative identification with two convicted thieves on a hill called Golgotha that captured my imagination this week. You see, Luke reminds us, saying that these words were written as Jesus makes this connection that says, I'm numbered with the transgressors. Luke says he says this at the, at the Last Supper. Mark remembers it differently. And in most of your Bibles, it won't be preserved this way because your Bible will only involve uh, verse 28. But Mark 15, 27 reads this way. And with him, they crucified two thieves, one on his right and the other on his left. And in brackets, it says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which said, and he was numbered among the transgressors. Maybe that's why the, the, the translations, the later 20th century translations in English just drop that verse. Maybe they can't harmonize the chronology. I don't think it matters. Luke says he says it at the Last Supper. Mark says it at the crucifixion. The bottom line is this. As far as we know, these two guys were not 
falsely convicted. These two thieves were rightly convicted. See, they were actually guilty. We know this by their own, by their own dialogue. We might say that Jesus, th- th- these guys actually deserved what they were suffering. And still Jesus associates that with them in this place, taking his place right between them. There's something to that. In fact, if you just need a little tweet today and tune back in the Mexico-Germany game, which is happening right now, maybe this would be the tweet. Heaven's chosen place is right between two thieves. That's not plan B, guys. That's plan A. He chose his place among the transgressors. What I really want to dialogue today is this interesting promise that Jesus makes. He makes a weird, bizarre Interesting promise to these two thieves hanging there. And let's pick that up in Luke chapter 23. I'll just read it. You know the story. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at them. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. For there it was written, notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. Now listen to this. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him as if provoked by the very rulers in the crowd insulting him and says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Do not, do, don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what, we, what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Then Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Some might say Jesus only forgives the one who he knew would accept him, the one who defended him, the one who already believed in him, which we know is an interesting story, but not half as interesting as the reality that it doesn't seem to me, coming through Scripture, that believing he was who he said he was is even the qualifying factor. We know this because the very night before he hung on that execution stake, there was still great controversy among the chosen 12 as to who the heck he even was. Belief in him does not make, give you access to him. So some would look at that and say, yeah, he forgave the one who already believed. It's way more interesting than that. You see, the 12 weren't even there. John was there, and about four people named Mary were there. Where were the rest? (laughs) Sorry, I leak all the time. Where were the rest? They were hiding. They were unsure. They didn't believe. Like John's cousin, John the Baptist, we discussed this recently. They weren't sure this was actually what they were waiting for. Most of the scholarly work around this text text struggles to reconcile how it is that Jesus promises to this thief the consummation of a kingdom. How in the world is he actually saying that the long-awaited arrival is going to happen before sundown? He seems to have promised paradise, according to Luke, and the way Luke remembers it. And he seems to say by nightfall this is going to happen. Paradise? What paradise? How embarrassing Surely Jesus is caught this time overreaching. Maybe he actually is a false prophet. Skeptics seize this passage and say, see, everything he said was nonsense because all he was able to deliver was darkness and an earthquake that day and a painful death to the thief that he spoke to kindly. Surely this is the example of Jesus overreaching. Surely 
This is how we can prove that he spoke nonsense. What paradise? What paradise before sundown? Remember, Jesus wasn't stuck there between two jokers by accident. This was the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Jesus willingly takes his place among the transgressors, and in that God-forsaken place, he talks about paradise. How can this be? But think of how powerful it is. Hold space for one second. What paradise is there for the person who gains the whole world but can't sleep at night? because of a guilty conscience? What paradise is there for the person who rises on the high praises of the masses, accepting their accolades and embodying their hopes? And of course, I'm thinking about Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo and Chicharito. Anyway, you can think of whoever you want. But what paradise is for the person who literally holds the hopes of the nations on their shoulders if they can't outrun the evil that they have done? What paradise is there for them? What paradise is there for the person whose sins and transgressions haunt them, stalk them by day and stalk them by night? What paradise is there for us until we are set free from atoning for our own capital offenses? Oh, church, don't miss this. Catch this. This thief enjoyed the freedom that not even Caesar could boast of, hanging next to Christ who chose his place in that God-forsaken space. There is no paradise for the unforgiven. It doesn't matter what you add to it. If you are unforgiven, you are still in prison. But to those who find their way to forgive and release themselves and extend that to others, to those who find the way to fall on the complete atoning work of Christ in the cross, oh, their debts, their transgressions, their sins are behind them and their paradise is real. What is the gospel for us today? Forgiveness is a brand new world. It's paradise. Maybe I should say it this way. Forgiveness is the only real paradise. Can you hold space for one second and just think of what it might be like to let yourself go? To stop atoning for that work? To stop paying for that debt? Can you think of it? It's the only real paradise. You can add Fiji and a million dollars a second income to anything else in the world, and if you are not free at the level of forgiving yourself and those who have wronged you, that there is no paradise that you can claim. You can have everything in the known universe and not this one thing, and you are not free. But for those whose deeds have been absolved, whose willful rebellion, remember, we're not talking about ignorance, we're talking about transgressions. For those whose willful rebellion has been blotted out once and for all, for those whose value and human dignity is not open for question, but has been settled once and for all by God. For those know true freedom, those are the ones who are released. This thief, this embarrassment to his family name. He was nobody's pride and joy. He was no small town's favorite son in this place of suffering and public shame and being mocked by the masses. He experienced the paradise of total forgiveness. This nameless criminal experienced heaven in the real world on that darkest of dark days. And I want to emphasize this one more. I happen happen to know who we are. I happen to know many of us who work and hustle and never stop running at 90 miles an hour to atone, to pay, to absolve ourselves from the things that we have done. I know who we are. 
But Jesus chose this place among thieves, among us, among the transgressors. And in this place, heaven chose to scream in sign language what love actually looked like. This is the place he picked. This wasn't forced on him because of your sin or my sin. This wasn't even forced on him because of original sin. This was always going to be heaven's next move. Jesus belonged there. Make space for that in your mind. How can that be between you and me? between the ones who blew it, the ones who blow it, the ones who are going to continue to try to figure out how can we not stop? He belongs there. And this invitation to allow him to do whatever atoning needs to be done, to allow him to do it, that is your paradise. And it's right there for the taking if you can figure out how to let it go, if you can accept it. Sometimes the writers of the Bible give us amazing word pictures, which for brains like mine are so essential. I was listening to an old record this week Actually, I say record, it's not, not that far of a stretch. I think it came out in 1994. Helen Baylor produced a live album, and there's a song in there called The Sea of Forgetfulness that just prompted my memory as my father and I were building a 10-foot-long farm table. Micah writes about it this way. He talks, here's the image he gives us. The prophet Micah says, it's like casting our sins into the depth of the sea. Surely we know how deep the sea is and how far gone those things go when they go there. Isaiah 1 would use different language, and he would say it this way. Though your sins are like scarlet, they are now made white as snow. There's a powerful image for those of us who need that. Psalms 103 says it this way. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our willful rebellion, our transgressions from us. You pick the image that means the most to you. I don't know. Helen Baylor calls it the sea of forgetfulness. That's not actually a thing, but it works for me. The bottom line is this. Any reason we think we have left to continue to atone for our sins is gone. That's the only good news to announce. It's gone. He chose that place on purpose to show us that there's no depth of darkness, there's no hole deep enough, there's no sin black enough, dark enough, final enough, capital offense, intense enough to remove heaven's choice, which was to stand right next to it and say, paradise is yours if you can get off this cross and let me do this work. Sorry, I'm getting a little excited. The worst kind of wasted time is time spent doing what has already been done, building what has already been built, collecting what has already been collected, compiling what has already been compiled. There's nothing to gain in atoning for your sins. The work is done. He chose this place among us. He knew the deal. And he chose to associate with us, the ones who can't keep ourselves from the brokenness that, we're carry, that we carry. So we give it to him. We lean on him. And that is our paradise. That's the gospel for us today. Let's pray.